Howdy and welcome to For the Greater Defense with Associate Professor of the Practice, retired Colonel Matt Gill. Today's episode, we will discuss the end of Professor Gill's time in the Pentagon and discuss his next career move into Germany. Howdy, it's good to be back. Thank you for joining us again. Last episode, we left off on your time at the Pentagon right after the bin Laden raid. So can you discuss what the feeling in the Pentagon was like at, at that time? Well, I think it was uh, pretty good. I, we were really busy. And uh, I think a lot of people, when they go back and look at the timeline, they'll see that the bin Laden raid occurred on one weekend. And then the very next weekend, we had another uh, very high-profile target on Wall Lockheed in Yemen. And so I think for our team, there was no rest for the wicked. We went from one high-profile event and transitioned straight into another one. And then three weeks later, we had another one. And so I think probably the overall sense in the Pentagon was was much-needed victory uh, by everybody there, everybody from the lowest bureaucrat to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but that we still had a war and we were still we still had major threats that we were going after. Then you discussed how there was discussion about what would be next for counterterrorism and the war on terror after the raid on, on bin Laden's compound. What kind of discussion occurred right in the wake of that as to you know, how, how you would navigate into what's next? Yeah, I think a lot of that was driven by the media is that now that you decapitate an organization, you know, then it must be over. You know, we, we, we sacked the quarterback in the last seconds of a, of a football game, so the game's over. And, and I think a lot of us in the intel community knew that that was absolutely not the case. We knew we were still going to have major issues in Iraq. You've got Sunni Shia insurgencies still going on. You've got the essentially almost the birth of ISIS, or at least the telltale signs of another organization come in. And the Taliban and Haqqani network were still alive and well in Afghanistan. So while some probably thought that once bin Laden was killed, um, that, that it would be all over, but we knew it wasn't. At that time, did those in your community understand that potentially the decapitation strategy is, was not necessarily the only way forward in the counterterrorism world? Yeah, we all knew that. I don't think there was anybody in the community that knew that once we took bin Laden off the earth that the uh, that it was going to be all over. We we still had a job to do. We had we had you know that very next day those organizations were out executing the job that they were doing every day and we knew we were going to continue to do it. Right after that time, uh, you you moved on to Germany. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that uh, what that move was like and and what was next for you? Yeah, so uh, we all got informed that uh, Admiral Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was he was going to retire. He was going to leave the job, and usually at big higher headquarters, especially at that executive level, the people go with the the principal. They generally leave. Some kind of stick around, and and so I remember the day the. Um, I had kind of told my wife, hey, look, we're probably going to PCS soon. Well, where are we going? I don't know yet. And we knew we wanted to go overseas. I personally wanted to go to Hawaii and and get out into the Pacific because that was back when even President Obama had mentioned pivot to the Pacific. I had kind of guided my career around the fight. And here's the president saying the fights in the Pacific didn't end up being that way. and so Admiral Mullen lined all of us majors, his iron majors up in the office to say goodbye and said, here, you know, if I could do one thing for you or working so hard, what would it be? And, you know, you had the typical aviators. I want to go try out for the Blue Angels. I want to Air Force guy. I want to go to this school. And, and my battle buddy, Bill Mangle, who was a, another intel officer in the Army, he had always been in the Pacific and he wanted to go work Africa. 
I had worked a lot of Africa, and I wanted to go to the Pacific. So when he walked up, I stood at attention, and I said, Sir, I want to go to Special Operations Command Pacific Sock Pack in Hawaii. He's like, done deal. Thank you, Matt. Uh, good luck. And then he goes to my buddy Mangle, and he's like, I want to go to Special Operations Command Africa. And then he looked at his uh, military aide and said, you got that? And he said, I got that. And a couple of weeks later, um, we all got our orders. And uh, the guy switched the names. He just didn't inadvertently, wasn't listening, wasn't paying attention. So we ended up going to Germany, and Bill Mangle went back to the Pacific. Can you talk a little bit about what that, uh, what the command is there in Germany and, and what, uh, what you were working on? Yeah, so other combatant commands, Africa Command at that point in time, was the military lead for U.S. military operations in the continent. Each one of those combatant commands has what's called a theater special operations command, and they are the ones that essentially command and control all special operations forces in that continent. And I went there as the deputy uh, intelligence officer and also the chief for intelligence operations. Um, and it was fun. Uh, we talked in the previous podcast about moving to Germany, but where we, the family was off on vacations, my life became one spinning plate after another where my time in the Middle East had been al-Qaeda in Iraq, al-Qaeda Taliban in, um, in Afghanistan. And it wasn't the same in, in Africa. How did you handle moving into that complex problem set all over the continent of Africa? Yeah, so you ended up, uh, when, I, when we got there, um, the Libyan Civil War had just kicked off. We were post-Arab Spring, and so all those North African countries that had kind of fallen apart a little bit, uh, and we, I jumped right into Libya. And in fighting that, this is post-Qaddafi's death and transnational government standing up. Uh, we focused on that for a little while, and then all of a sudden Somalia decided to blow up, and so now we're work in Somalia. And then I remember we did that for a couple of months. And then, you know, you're at home and then they get a call and said, hey, some senator wants us to go capture Joseph Kony in Uganda. Or, or, and we're, we're thinking, okay, is that really a national priority? And it was a senator in, on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And so it became our priority. And special operators, that's your mission, execute your mission. So we did that, came back, and then it was, oh, wow, the French are going to invade Mali to take on Boko Haram and al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. And so now we're going to Paris and working with the French special operations. And then it's, oh, gosh, Libya is going. And so it ended up being these just spinning plate effects, so many problems to handle, each of them uniquely different. Can you discuss maybe a little bit of the requirements from you to adapt to that environment as an intelligence officer when you're handling so many different issues at once? Yeah, it was pretty tough. And uh, I would say that when I was in Iraq supporting uh, the units there, the problem sets were very finite. You're looking for a human being. And can you pressure that human network enough to to cause enough peace for the sheikhs of Ramadi or Fallujah to, to instill more power? And so it was very much a pressure the network campaign. But then you go to Africa, and all the problems are different. And now, instead of dealing with very finite problems, then I'm dealing with supporting intelligence to a, a kinetic problem, where we we know that it's going to be kinetic, or is it build you know stability operations in in Somalia, or are we standing up an entirely new country's government and military in Libya, and then finite human targeting with the French in Boko Haram and al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb. So you, you definitely had to be extremely agile. 
And what do you think was the most difficult problem set that you handled while in your time at South Africa? Oh, doing it from afar, absolutely. There was decisions, probably the right decision was to put SOCAF in, in Germany, um, co-located with AFRICOM and, and UCOM and Special Operations Command Europe. Uh, but being off-continent, is what we used to say, was really tough. And so you had so much special operations that would go forward for a period of time, and it, but then you're in Germany, and you're only going forward for short periods of time. And, it, and I think it was just the tyranny of distance. Did that uh, cycle of short periods of deployments or, or moving forward, did that have a different effect over family life and, and kind of your cycle of life as compared to other past assignments? Well, so it actually was way better. See, it comes across like it was worse. Um, But, you know, having the wife that I have, she would spend the time while I'm gone planning the next vacation. And I'd come home from work and, uh, you know, repack a bag with completely different clothes. And then we're we're off to Munich. We're, you know, going, you know, to Paris. We're going to take a tour to Brussels in Paris. And um, and she is a two-time uh, marathon runner, and we were able to run the Paris Marathon and go to tour Normandy. And so I think being in high-rev operations for a while and then coming home, I had a series of really unique vacations to spend with the family. And, and I, would, I think she would agree that those short of two years was probably a great recovery from the war in Iraq and Afghanistan tours. Throughout your time at uh, Sock Africa, you you were there for two years, correct? I just had two years, about nineteen months. Okay, it was, and it was supposed to be a three year tour, uh, but it got cut short. So, can you explain a little bit about why it got cut short and what was next for you after that? Yeah, so uh, so I was forward at the time, and I was actually in Uganda chasing Joseph Kony, and then I got a call from my boss that said, "Hey, man, we're gonna we, we need you and your my my deputy to fly back, and hey, you're getting ready to." Uh, moved to Fort Hood, Texas. And I thought he was kidding. I really did. But when I got back, the orders were there. And uh, and it said, you're going to Fort Hood. And this was right before Thanksgiving. Um, we were going to tell the kids while well, we were at the Tower of London in London and break their hearts again because they'd gotten used to being in Germany. And, uh, and so I got on the phone with my branch chief. It's just uh, an individual out there who manages your career for you. And, and I didn't know the guy personally at all. And, uh, and so I just said, hey, you know, what are my options here? And he says, well, you can decline uh, and your career will be over or you can go ahead and take the job. And at that point in time, I was all in. So if I was having a good time, I was kind of a, I was a brand new lieutenant colonel and uh, I had a boss who trusted me um, to do what I needed to do. And I had a commander who essentially said, Gil, Find me problems in Africa and find me solutions for them. And, and I really appreciated that, that, that sense of trust. And, and so I, I kind of debated, came home, talked to Jenny about it for a while, and she, she kind of wanted to stay in Germany. We all did. And I called the branch manager back the next day and, and essentially said, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to decline. And he was like, he's like, no, you will not. And I said, okay. And then he had a few choice words for me. And that's when he told me that the person who was originally slated to be the G2 for First Cavalry Division, a young lady named Jamie Leonard, a newly promoted lieutenant colonel, had been killed in Afghanistan the month prior uh, on, by an Afghan soldier in a, in a blue-on-green incident. And at that point in time, this sense of selfishness just fell on me that, that yes, I loved special operations community. I loved my brothers and sisters, loved the mission, but... How could I morally 
turn down a job that somebody had worked so hard for. And, and, and Jamie had grown up in first cab. She, she was definitely a first cab person. And from what I understand, just a phenomenal officer. And, and I just knew I could not turn it down. And uh, what I found out later was my branch chief was her classmate at one point in time, and he had taken it really hard. And so, no, I felt my duty was uh, I'm going to go I'm going to go be a great G2 because she couldn't ever take the job and she really wanted it. And so we told the kids at Thanksgiving and moved in February. I did one more pump down range and and then uh, we got on, got on the big plane and flew back to the States. After so many years in the special operations community, how was that transition going back into the more conventional army? It was awful. It, it really just was awful. I was It was horrible. Uh, and here's why. Um, we got to Fort Hood, and within a few days, I was in a major training exercise because the division was getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan. And, and so I, I, yep, I'm ready to go to Afghanistan. And so when I went into the exercise, it was, uh, it was a, a very conventional tank. I mean, first cavalry divisions filled with tanks, and, and I'd never been in that world ever. On day five of the 10-day exercise, the guy I replaced, uh, Colonel Dan Allen, fine intel officer, uh, he said he just kind of high-fived me and said, okay, Matt, you got it. And I said, no, I don't got it. And he said, you got it. And he's like, and I said, I don't got it. And he said, you're going to do it. And then he shoved the microphone in my face at the morning briefing, and I gave an awful intel brief, just complete failure. Went through the exercise, and my commanding general, a guy named Mike Bills, very forgiving boss, but very fatherly. And uh, he called me up to the office, and uh, he was like, Matt, how do you think you did? And I said, sir, I think I failed you. And he said, well, I think you did. But read this. Don't come back until you read it. And he actually gave me the operations manual for an armored division. And I took it home, and I read it. And at that point in time, I got the message was that I may be special in special operations, but I'm not special here. And this is my mission, and I need to study how to do the mission. And so I set apart some really in-depth study. How do tanks work? What do they, you know, what do they smell like inside? I'd never been inside of a tank before. But it was, uh, this was my mission. I'm going to do it well. And how did you adapt to that new challenge? Uh, were there any mentors that kind of helped you on that transition, or were you really on your own after getting that, that operations manual? Well, you know, I was not on my own. I had just unbelievable peers. Uh, I had other lieutenant colonels who were new to the division, not special operations backgrounds. And boy, did they wrap their arm around me and help me through it, and it was great. I also had a chief of staff named Steve Gilland, who was a former unit member. And I knew him from the unit when I was just getting there. And, uh, and he was a great source of mentorship and walking me through, okay, this is what we do. But three months into the job, we're on a plane to Afghanistan. And so everybody is out at Fort Hood talking about tank warfare and tank this and Bradleys and Apaches. Uh, I think my boss knew, okay, now we're in Gill's world. And when we got to Kandahar, Afghanistan, we were back in an insurgency that I'd been doing for a long time. And I think the trust my boss put in me to solve these problems uh, in southern Afghanistan, I, I think that was pretty amazing of him. And then how did you communicate the differences between the world that you had lived in and the world that they were moving into as you went into Afghanistan? Well, I think it was really, you know, you, you take a high-end special operations unit with a lot of really high-end people, high-end equipment, and a lot of money, and then all of a sudden you're in a, in a tank division headquarters that is now um, really fighting an insurgency. It was a give and take. Okay, what were some of the really good lessons I learned? Um, 
uh, in special operations and can I bring them here and, and, it, and it translated really really well I think the hardest part I had was I just had so much stuff I had 68 airplanes on the airfield that were working for me well not working for me it was working for my collection manager uh, Major Burris and, uh, and he did an amazing job flying his own air force uh, doing collection operations for us well, I think that will about uh, lead us off into the final probably episode of your, your career trajectory. But I just thank you for joining us again and look forward to finishing off the discussion. Gig'em. Gig'em.